Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to another installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop Podcast. I'm Ryan Miller. And I'm Brad Carlson. And today we've got special guest uh, Anna Cates with us, uh, who is in, well, explain it to us, Anna. It's uh, the Minnesota Office of Soil Health, which you're actually a faculty member in the Department of Soil, Water, and Climate. Yeah, you got most of it right there. I'm also affiliated with the Water Resources Center on campus. Okay, so she's she's relatively uh, new hire uh, for for the university, working on this kind of area of, of soil health, which we were talking about earlier. Brad is kind of, some senses, it seems kind of nebulous, but there are very specific things that we can uh, mention that uh, relate to soil health or characteristics that can be used in describing that. And yeah, it's become very popular in agriculture lately. I know, like. Uh, uh, all the, the, the local meetings you see are, it's, it seems like every time I see a photograph of them, the rooms are full. Uh, early in my career as, as a soil scientist, uh, we actually were more inclined to call it soil quality than, than soil health. It sort of evolved. And, and uh, Anna, prior to you getting here, uh, Deborah Allen was here and worked in a lot of these areas for many years. But uh, in some respects, I think a lot of the people that were working in those areas back then kind of worked in a lot of anonymity because I don't and I can't even explain why why people maybe weren't paying attention back then to to, to the extent to which now it's just everyone's so excited and interested. I don't, I'm not even sure what flipped the switch and what happened there. That's a good question. Uh, soil health definitely has sort of skyrocketed in po- popularity, right? It's much more of a buzzword than it was five years ago. And I think that's partly because we can say something about microbes in the soil now. We can look at their DNA and say, oh, who's there? There's this many actinomycetes. There's this many X, Y, and Z. But we still don't really know what they all do. But I do think the fact that we can say something about their DNA has brought it back up. And then also, I think that soil health as a a solution to water quality problems has really gotten a lot of attention. Well, I think that's that's really interesting. You know, I used to talk to farmers not really coming from those angles, but earlier in my career I did a lot of tillage work and, and um, kind of predates you, but Ray Almeris, who was an ARS scientist, used to talk about aggressive tillage, the kind we would consider probably the typical tillage today I don't know I would almost call it conventional tillage but I guess by definition we still kind of call moldboard plowing conventional tillage even though it's not conventional anymore but the the disc rippers that the way a disc ripper shattered the soil um, and through blunt force really eliminated all soil structure and it was in an artificial situation the soil was aerated but it was also prone to be compacted then just simply uh, through water infiltration, through traffic, or just simply time that the weight of the own soil particles eventually would just push themselves lower. And what Ray always used to talk about was, um, I don't think he used the analogy of it being like drugs, but it kind of was like a drug, like if you were addicted and then you wanted to quit doing it, there was withdrawal symptoms. And it's like, there was like that with the, the with aggressive tillage that, that if you were using that kind of tillage and or are using that kind of tillage and then you quit you're gonna kind of pay a penalty for a few years before things kind of get back in order i used to talk to farmers about the fact and almost every farmer can relate to this if you've ever gone out after a rainstorm and dug a hole in the woods or on a fence line and think about how mellow the soil is because 
you think to yourself, if I dug that hole in a field or if I dug that hole in the garden, I'd have one solid lump of mud. But actually, after an inch, two inches of rain, you can still go dig a, a hole in the in in the woods or on a fence line where there's not been any tillage, and it's still mellow in that soil structure. And you know the the thing about it is that we've talked about for years is we're just not quite sure how we ever get to that point that we're we've got that out in our farm fields. Right, and I think that uh, I kind of like that analogy of thinking of it as a drug withdrawal because that also brings it back to the biology. And one point I've been trying to make is, yes, this biology that we don't fully understand is kind of the the drivers of that structure, right? Who creates the structure there? If you're not artificially creating it with tillage, it's your soil microbes, soil organisms. And so if you're not feeding them, then yeah, they are going to go through withdrawal. And you do need to go back and kind of, if you think of it like a health analogy, you know, bring them back to health. That's recovery is not always a rapid process. I think one of my first experiences, actually, Brad, is I was working with you on some on-farm tillage work uh, up there uh, with Mark Bauer, and we had uh, multiple different uh, treatments out, a, a disc ripper, and we had a mold bore plow, and then we had some strip tillage that he was he was doing as the three kind of base treatments. And, um, you know, witnessing after a number of years with these strips kind of being in the same place year after year, we were going out to take measurements on one occasion uh, after a rain shower and just how difficult it was to move around the moldboard plow. Just to walk. Just to walk. I mean, yeah. it, it wasn't real feasible, you know. And, yeah, it's a big difference. And then you're looking at the strip till that had been there for, you know, I don't know how many years. We Probably had put eight, it, ten at that point. At, yeah. So so you've got uh, so many years and we could walk out there. It wasn't muddy. It was, you had seen this infiltration that was, it was just remarkable to see the differences in these different systems. And I remember even talking with Mark at, you know, cause he had been long-term in the system that, uh, you know, he'd get out and be able to do field work like spraying or something like that, uh, far faster than some of his neighbors that were right. in more of a conventional tillage system. So interesting. I don't know if we were really talking about soil health at that point and more, it was kind of like you're witnessing this and, now reflecting back, I can kind of see see where all this is coming from. Well, I think part of the part of the problem, and we were talking before we started recording, was with a lot of those characteristics, it, there really was not much of an ability to put a number on it, and so it was difficult to actually document. You know, if if there was some gauge or indice or test, and your number was this, and then you did something, and the number got better. You know, now we can start saying this is an improvement, but with never having the ability to measure anything, it always was just kind of anecdotal. And, you know, I think we all know uh, an extension we try and stay away from the anecdotal because you can get in a lot of trouble with that stuff. Yeah, but I, I do think that that's what we're doing with soil health. We're kind of trying to catch up to those anecdotes and put numbers to them. What you mentioned, Ryan, with trying to uh, quantify the number of days you get in the field when you get in the field compared to your neighbors, that's a benefit that almost all farmers doing cover crops in no-till site. And I can't tell you, A, how many days that is, and I can't tell you exactly you know, how many dollars those days are worth right now. So that's something I've been noodling around, trying to talk about, uh, talk to different groups around the state, trying to figure out how to measure it, talk to the economists, how do you quantify those days in, in dollars in the bank or just I think for most farmers though it comes down to peace of mind a lot of the people who do soil health you know they cite those benefits and they say they just 
just more fun to farm that way and they feel you know more secure and like less risk uh less risk in their operation i, I can sense a collaboration coming with the new uh, uh climatologist that might be uh yes. coming on board there could be some yes, work to be done there some serious I, potential I, yeah, I, I don't know when she gets here she might find out that there's this long waiting line of a lot of people I know, right? a list of things they yeah, want well done. that's the problem when you're hired and then show up a year later then people are waiting for you at the door you got a whole list yeah so, so so where exactly are we at then with, with, for instance, some of these soil tests now have been, well, I don't know if I want to say gaining popularity, notoriety may be yeah. a better word for it. Uh, NRCS has been pushing the Haney test. There's a Solvita test and so forth. Is, is How much of this stuff is at the point where we want to use it and can use it for evaluating practices to the point where we would tell farmers yeah, do this and look at this? Well, I kind of think those are two different questions. I think a lot of the biological tests will show you a difference between practices. Uh, so if you have, you know, paired plots or even, you know, field level uh, studies, you can see a difference between practices and your respiration in the soil and your water extractable carbon and nitrogen, which those are the measurements that are the basis of the Haney test. And I do think that you will often see a difference in systems that are trying to build your biology, keeping roots in the ground. Those are going to affect those measurable pools. What we don't have, what the next step is, is, okay, say you have this much more water extractable carbon, what should you do for nitrogen application next year? What is your corn yield management goal? Yeah, your management yeah. implications are not there. So I think they're good in terms of showing that, yes, we've changed soil biology and changed soil structure, but they're not there in terms of saying, therefore, do X next yeah. year. We've, we've actually been running into that when we've been doing the Nitrogen Smart trainings because there's a, a subset of farmers that are aware that North Dakota has put out separate nitrogen recommendations for no-till farmers uh -huh. and we're getting those questions but we just have to say we don't have a database yet. Uh-huh yeah I think that's totally true and we're starting that long-term nitrogen trial here in Minnesota right and so we can add some soil health type testing to that that could be a really valuable resource because you do hear oh yeah after you build up your organic matter change your soil structure and make that nitrogen more available you can cut back on nitrogen other fertilizer applications but we don't have a number on that do you cut back 10 percent do you cut back five percent <laughs> And so what I always tell farmers now is just to play around. If you can see organic matter numbers going up, if you know your soil structure is different, do that test strip at 10% less nitrogen, see how it goes, you know, see what happens. Yeah, I know we've been getting a lot of questions too related to some of the pest management issues with uh, using in cover crops, for example. I know there's some people really interested in uh, white mold in particular and cereal rye. And I was picking Dean Melvick's brain uh, earlier this winter about this, and he was not aware of any work that had been done. And so it sounds like it uh, is an area that could be ripe for, for some kind of research uh, project if we could uh, find the right RFP to yeah. to implement it. But there's a lot of people doing these sorts of uh, practices and then, you know, maybe uh, witnessing or, or experiencing something that they think is, is there. It'd be really neat to start digging in and try to figure out, well, if you do this, then this is a lower risk, or if you do this, we can do that. Yeah. Uh, some of that, those questions are going to be really, really interesting. 
Yeah, and those questions are coming out in conversations with uh, RMA, with the crop insurance people also. And, you know, a couple other states have these incentive programs for cover crops where they'll knock $5 off your premium if you're planting cover crops. Uh, and we haven't done that in Minnesota, partly because, you know, $5 isn't enough to cover the cost of implementing cover crops for the first time. So it's kind of just a nominal good job kind of payment. It's not a here's enough money to really try this kind of payment. And instead, what we're trying to do is funnel data to RMA so they can see their risk over the years of cover crop usage, because that's what they really need. They need county level data. How much less risky are you if you're planting cover crops versus if you're not? And it's going to take a while to get that database up, right? You've got your but if, if it's true, right, and I do think it's true, if it's true that cover crops are lowering your risk, then your 10-year rolling average yield is going to reflect that. You're going to have less drastic, less severe losses when other people have big losses. Well, and part of that, and we've been talking about this with a lot of the water quality stuff related to nitrogen management, the potential that cover crops have to arrest nitrates from the profile and keep them soil profile and keep them out of water then the next step question is, okay, if the cover crop picked it up, now is it creditable to next year's crop? That gets into a little what you're talking about, the long-term things, because some of the short-term research we've got is not showing release of that nitrogen. We're not sure if it's uh, being immobilized and into the organic pool in the soil or what's going on. But, you know, a lot of the theory is long-term, we will start seeing uh, more release and therefore potentially lower rates of nitrogen. Yeah, well, if you think about that, and I'm, I'm not going to make a prediction about how much nitrogen you get next year from your cover crop either, but uh, if you think about how the carbon and nitrogen are going in, you're getting that extra carbon in the system from growing a plant in the off-season, and then you're taking up the nitrogen from your soil that presumably otherwise would have leached out. So if that goes into your rye plant and subsequently into your microbial biomass, you're a lot more likely to keep it in your soil than if it was to leach out. So overall, you're keeping more nitrogen if it's going into your cover crop than into the groundwater. But when it comes back for your corn crop, that is the open question I think you're getting at, Brad. Yeah. You're going to sink it to the the field or into the soil and, yeah. and kind of bank it, so to speak. Yeah, you're banking it for what we'd like to know is exactly when it would come when back. But of course, out? I think you say this in Nitrogen Smart too, something about, you know, if we could predict the weather, then we could right. predict that too. R- right. And, and I think part of that, though, is too, is if we are actually immobilizing nitrogen, if it's not ending up in the crop, well, by definition, then that should mean that we're also building soil organic matter. Yes. And so we should be able to at least measure that. Yes, slow and steady, I think you are. It just depends how much biomass you get. And so frequently in the cold climate, we just get minimal biomass in your cover crop. And so your soil organic matter gains are correspondingly slow. It's the long game. So, yeah, you draw up another another interesting point here is that uh, given our climate, our limitations with producing biomass after a main cash crop or ahead of planting a cash crop, those can be some pretty serious restrictions in terms of how much biomass we can create and what the potential benefit is. Do you think there's a direct relationship there to, you know, we're oftentimes focused on how much cover crop is there? Is, is there like how many acres is that? Yeah. Well, no, no, like, uh, just pure biomass per acre, you know, should we be that mechanical about it or is it, is it just the presence of a plant that's growing? Is that a benefit in itself? 
It depends. Every plant that's growing is going to, you know, stimulate some microbes around it. But for the more tangible benefits, both personally, like weed control, that's going to be directly related to how much biomass you grow. You know, you literally need that physical residue to prevent weed emergence. And then also for nitrate drawdown, you're going to need more biomass pulling in that nitrate. That's going to give you more benefit. So I think biomass is a perfectly reasonable place to focus. And the fact that we don't produce a ton of it is both good and bad. You get means you get less nitrogen tie-up. I think most farmers trying a cover crop are really unlikely to tie up a significant amount of nitrogen in their first couple of years unless they're you know, pushing their corn planting way back or something like that. Um, well, doesn't seem that likely if they're worried about their corn crop. Right. And one benefit we've got is ample moisture, at least yeah. for throughout the south, central, southeast part of the state. That's never going to be a factor that we really have to be worried about with, no. well, we got too much biomass out there. Now we're not going to have enough rainfall to to you know produce a cash crop no if anything we're happy because we're taking yeah. some of that moisture out of the soil and able it, to drive on it faster pro- it's, a, it's probably more though an issue of because we have seen this the last couple of years if a lot of that is tied up as an organic fraction and it gets cold if we have cold delayed springs uh, like we had the last couple of years it's now it's not necessarily releasing with the timing we want so it's still just a bit of a management question as it's far a as management it does, question. doesn't mean it's not there but uh, it's not necessarily timed the way we want it either right and i there's a nrcs guy who says you know you, if you're going to add carbon from the atmosphere and you want to build soil organic matter you have to add nitrogen somewhere else and so that might mean that you increase your starter fertilizer those first couple years to keep the nitrogen cycling kind of at the time that you need nitrogen to be released well, all this stuff eventually should reach some kind of an equilibrium, though, so that you don't have to, you're not going to just keep building organic matter uh, in the soil. It's it's not, I mean, it's not going to get to the point where it's three feet deep and wait, we're wading around in it. So at some <laughs> point, if, if, we're, if we're compensating because we're building residue or organic matter, that shouldn't stay on forever. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Are we aiming for a prairie level of organic matter? You know, that's the potential of a lot of our soils. And they had, you know, 10% organic matter. Is that our our goal? Maybe that's not. And I think that's an open question in terms of like, uh, you know, how much organic matter do you quote unquote need? And especially in Minnesota, where we have more organic matter than most of the soil in the world, uh, it's maybe you're not going to immediately see a production difference if you go from three to four percent organic matter the way you would if you were going from two to three or one two percent you know the way some parts of the country are concerned about so i don't know i it would be kind of neat to see what crop production looks like on a soil that has that 10 to 12 percent organic matter um but it's probably not necessary to get most of the functions we want in terms of keeping your soil in place keeping biology moving and you know still producing crops well one of the other factors related to the increase in organic matter and i'd I'd love to know your opinion on this is it's frequently discussed what the increase in water holding capacity is because of increases in organic matter and farmers have frequently questioned that um is it is is a healthier soil less likely to need drainage because the the soil profile will actually hold more water before it's saturated 
Yeah. So you think about what you want your soil to do. You want it to drain water quickly when the water comes in and you want it to hold soil for the water for the long term. So those are two really different functions and they require both big pores for the quick drainage and small pores for the long term water holding capacity. And so when you have a good structured soil, it's essentially made up of many little sponges where inside the sponges, there's little pores for long term water storage. And between the sponges, there's big pores for the drain. And you really need the biology to build those aggregates and make that structure happen. Um, organic matter is going to help you do with uh, what all these publications say in terms of increasing your water holding capacity. I wouldn't hang my hat on any particular number of thousands of gallons of water. And a lot of water. people do hang their hat on that. Which I, well, maybe they just need a place right. to put you their know, hats. This, I don't know. That might be in a more important in an area where you're moisture limited. I'm thinking mm -hmm. like Nebraska or Kansas yeah. or somewhere where you might want to try to build or retain organic matter through the use of even like a no-till in that situation mm -hmm. where you could kind of build the barrier to losing moisture and maybe having the ability to retain more water. And our problem has always historically been too much water, um, at least for the most part, not every mm -hmm. year, obviously. But uh, uh, so I'm just, uh, I'm trying to think about this from the standpoint of given our kind of cool climate and uh, if we were to reduce tillage, what kind of gains can we make annually as far as increasing soil organic matter? Is there is there a good you know kind of rule of thumb or or not to put you on the spot with numbers or anything here? But you know what is the potential over the course of say a decade? Could I t go from three to four percent or three to five or do we have any idea on that? Yeah, I don't have hard research on that. It's going to be so dependent on everything that's going in and out. I think that a number like going up a percent in a decade is a number I would trust. You know, when people talk about measuring a going up a percent over a couple of years, those aren't numbers I necessarily trust. That's that's a pretty large increase. So you'd question that if someone threw that out at you is like, well, yeah, three I'd years say, I'm going to well, see can this. Can we sample that again and <laughs> just make sure you didn't get a root or a chunk of manure or something in your sample? You know, with uh, organic matter, it, it really matters um, because the soil is so heterogeneous, as you guys know, and you can get chunks of organic matter that uh, skew your sample a lot. And so when people say they have big increases in carbon really fast, I don't think that's feasible everywhere. Um, so uh, kind of to change a little bit, but stay on the organic matter side of things, uh, people are really interested in carbon nowadays, right? Yeah. And uh, in banking carbon or storing carbon from, an, you know, kind of reducing potentially atmospheric carbon. Uh, what's the potential for some of these practices to, to be involved in that? Do you see good opportunities from, a, from an agricultural standpoint to, to, you know, bank carbon, so to speak? Well, there's certainly a number of private entities who are looking at modeling how much carbon you can increase uh, on the landscape with particular practices. Uh, you know, I haven't engaged in that on the scientific level, and I think it would be interesting if farmers could get some, some payments for that, because I think a lot of the stuff we talk about with soil health, there's some private benefit back to the farmer, and there's also a lot of public benefit that we get from soil improvements. The water quality stuff we're talking about, keeping soil out of the ditches, lowering atmospheric carbon, and so I think it would be great if the market would bear some of the cost of changing farming practices. The, I think long term, the new systems could be just as 
good of a return on investment, but the transition could be difficult. So I love the idea of the market bearing some of the cost of that. And, you know, I think that the practices we talk about with soil health, reducing tillage, cover crops, they are heading you in the right direction to increase soil carbon. It's just a matter of how much and another number i'm not going to hang my hat on i guess well there's there's time to research all those sorts of things and and deal with it uh do you have any interest in getting involved with uh sort of uh genetic soil sampling i don't know i've kind of read a few articles here and there about that and had the opportunity actually to visit the the biological station the kellogg biological station or michigan and there was a, a researcher there that had some really interesting work going on with some of the genetics of soil health is what I'll call it. I'm sure it's called something else, but we're just trying to get the genomes of all the organisms in the soil and that kind of thing. Yeah. He had some uh, interesting work where they had, uh, he actually took soil from, uh, kind of surveyed farmers to send in soil from very productive farms and some kind of more mediocre type farms. And then, uh, had identified some genetic uh, sequences that, uh, were kind of correlated to more productive. And it was kind of seen that these more productive soil types so like we're having uh, some of those things were in common that had people had sent in that the, the so some of his work was around that kind of yeah. genetic side of things yeah that's really neat as a concept i i think i'm more interested in the sort of macro things we can do on the landscape i mean if we were reducing tillage and increasing cover crop adoption across the state i have no doubt we would improve the microbial diversity and abundance and putting numbers to the genomes of those organisms i think comes secondarily like the the big picture problems i think have sort of big picture solutions and i'd I'd like to be a little more focused on that scale it's fascinating though trying to think about who's where and if we find that super bug that helps us have more productive soils like that would be great and then we have to figure out how to help him establish in soil that already has millions and billions of other organisms and i guess my big take home was it it was more of a it could be a a measurement tool almost Mm. like a soil test indice with uh you know what's your phosphorus level well it's not Mm -hmm. your total phosphorus now i can say like if i'm at this level i should be sufficient Mm -hmm. in how i get there maybe you know, yeah. isn't important, but it could be a tool by which we could measure if we're yeah. sufficient or not. But truly, even if you're insufficient in X, Y, or Z microbe, we don't have a great mechanism for delivering that microbe to your field to fix it, right? We know how to apply phosphorus. I don't think we know how to apply microbes. Microbes, yeah. yeah. Well, well, that's an interesting question, though, because certainly there's plenty of advertisements in the uh, farm press for biologicals that are purported to do various things. Uh, uh, in the soil, have you worked with those at all? I and I, I haven't messed around with testing any of those. The evidence I've seen is pretty mixed. Uh, like I said, there's billions of organisms already in the soil, and so the ability of any bug in a jug to take hold in that system is probably pretty low. The other thing I would say is that the functions we care about most from microbes in the soil, you know, excreting organic material to build aggregates or breaking down residue, those are ubiquitous. There's millions of organisms that can do those things. So we don't need a special organism to do that at this point. There may be some that are really good at it. We just haven't figured that out yet, but maybe this kind of testing will help us identify that. But I wouldn't worry about it. The things that we really need, releasing nitrogen, everyone can do that focus on the big picture the things we know can have an immediate impact is kind of the the way to go is what i'm hearing yeah yeah so i guess we kind of usually do this in the opposite direction <laughs> anna we usually start and talk and get get a little bit about the person's background as far as being a first-time guest and so 
Prior to extension here in your, your role, maybe we can uh, kind of take a step back and kind of what led you to where you're at now? Yeah, well, we've hit on some of my favorite things, which are organic matter research, organic matter building up in different systems. Um, that's the stuff I did my graduate work on when I moved from Wisconsin, which is where I moved from most immediately. I did school in Madison, Wisconsin in soil science and agronomy, measured different organic matter pools. Um, and I have family back in Wisconsin too, so that's kind of a home place for me. But I grew up back in Montana and I got interested in agriculture by working on small farms after college. So I you know, grew a lot of tomatoes and carrots and stuff like that and started wondering, what does it look like at a, like a quote unquote real farm, if you will, you know, the, the land that covers, the agriculture that covers most of the land in the country, what happens there? I got interested in trying to learn how that works. So that's why I went back to school. Well, we're, we're sure glad to have you because uh, as an extension person and a soil scientist, it's, uh, it's certainly been fun uh, bringing some of the new faculty members on board and looking at uh, uh, n- not just the potential, but how enthusiastic uh, some of you are, you particularly, uh, for some of this stuff. It's really, uh, it's really been fun working with. Oh, thanks for having me. It does feel like I'm joining, uh, you know, the Office for Soil Health was started to kind of coordinate what's already been happening in the state around soil health but you know not only extension but the sustainable farming association the land stewardship project there's been other organizations really working on soil health around the state so i feel like i'm just still trying to listen to what uh what's out there and figure out where i can best plug in and uh, connect the right people to each other so tell us a little bit about that what i'll call mosh the minnesota office of soil health uh where did that come from and in in what led to that, I guess? I almost feel like I should toss it right to Brad because he probably had his ear in on these conversations when I wasn't even aware as, of it yet. Not as much as you might think, actually. <laughs> but so the, what I understand is that the Board of Water and Soil Resources, our state conservation agency, came over to the Water Resources Center and said, we want to have a university position on soil health. And so the Water Resources Center funds part of my position. The Board of Water and Soil Resources funds most of it. And uh, part of my charge is not only to do soil health education with farmers, but to make sure that I'm uh, kind of upping the skills of the local conservation professionals, people who work for soil and water districts, people who work for NRCS. And so I'm involved with their training regime every year to bring soil health to the Bowser Academy and to NRCS training events to make sure that people who can be there every day on a county level, because of course I live in St. Paul, I can't you know be everywhere across the state, but it makes sense for me to support people who are at the county level. Uh, interesting. Yeah, so it's been a good group to work with. Good. Anything else you guys want to chat about today? Boy, we covered a lot. Yeah, I think we're in good shape. Yeah. Well, we're, we really are appreciative that you sat down with us today, Anna, and we're, we're glad you're on board to deal with this area of soil health. It's very nice to have someone that's a kind of a, a go-to person at the university for, for some of these things that come up, and, and so we say thank you for that, and we want to thank our listeners for tuning in today to today's installment of the Gopher Coffee Shop podcast. Thanks for listening. 